I was offered a few positions in the UN throughout my career, and probably the salary was like three times more than Israel. <laughs> but that wasn't so interesting for me because I really wanted to have this strong connection to Israel and bring it out to the world. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, I'm speaking with Yotam Politzer, CEO of Israel, Israel's leading humanitarian organization. Yotam's career at the organization spans over a decade, Under his leadership, Israel has expanded its global team and its impact. They launched a global emergency response to the COVID pandemic and engaged in the organization's largest humanitarian relief operation in response to the war in Ukraine. Earlier this year, Yotam was named the 2023 recipient of the Charles Rothman Prize, which recognizes young humanitarians whose work is grounded in their Jewish values and is of universal benefit to all people. In this episode, I talk to Yotam about how Israel is able to deploy to places where Israel doesn't have diplomatic relations and the knock-on effects of sending aid from Israel to unfriendly territories. We spoke about how humanitarian organizations fundraises at times where there isn't a crisis in the news and about the steps that he and his team take to ensure that they stay mentally and emotionally happy in the face of this difficult work. Take a listen. From Japan to Africa and from tornadoes to earthquake, there is one feature of most natural and man-made disasters in the world, which is the presence of Israel. So, Yotam, what is Israel and how does it manage to be at every flashpoint <laughs> in the world? Thanks, Andres. Thanks for having me. It's great, great to connect with you. So Israel essentially was established 22 years ago, and the vision was basically to bring Israeli expertise to the world's most vulnerable communities after disasters. So sort of the humanitarian wing of Startup Nation. The notion that Israel, not because everything is so great here, But because of our own challenges from water scarcity, the conflict, the trauma of the Holocaust, and so many other challenges, because of these challenges, we develop expertise and know-how that could and should be shared with the world, and especially communities who are really suffering from disasters, whether it's climate disasters like hurricanes, floods, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes, you name it or man-made disasters like what's happening now in Ukraine or conflicts in Africa. And we're talking about, by the way, not just developing countries. I started, you mentioned Japan. I started four days after the tsunami in Japan. You know, And you may ask, why would Japan need the support of Israel and Israel? It's the third largest economy. Interestingly, in Japan, they were very good on infrastructure. They immediately rebuilt everything that was destroyed by this 120-foot wave tsunami but they didn't have any kind of trauma care and support for kids. And again, unfortunately in Israel, 
from Sderot to Kiryat Shmona, we developed so many models to help children cope with trauma. So we brought it to Japan and to many other countries. Um, so that's what Israel is all about. It's about responding to crisis. We are kind of a group of Michigan Israelis. Whenever there's a crisis, it typically takes us about two hours to be prepared for deployment. But we always reach a place within the first 72 hours. I always joke that Israeli doctors who deploy with us, they jump on a plane and then they text their boss that they're not going to come to the shift tomorrow. <laughs> Let, yeah. It's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Sure. So you mentioned Israeli expertise. What are the areas? So it's actually two, two things. One is on the what and on the how. In other words, what are the areas in which Israeli disaster relief excels? Like you, you mentioned trauma, but, you know, for example, the rescue from the rubble, that there's a special IDF unit that does that. And so there are areas in which Israel excels. What are these areas? And secondly, how it is done differently? Like how this chutzpedic, Michigan Israeli way of doing things manifests in a disaster situation? Great. No, so I think that the what, the actual expertise and know-how is very important, but the how is actually more important. So the what is, yes, is the stuff that I mentioned, right? The water technology that we developed in Israel because of water scarcity. So a lot of water filtration, drip irrigations, everything related to water and sanitation is very developed here. And we work with more than 20 different Israeli companies bringing their technologies so people can have access to clean water. I mentioned the trauma, again, because of our ongoing trauma, because of the conflict, because of the trauma of the Holocaust, there's so many expertise developed in the field of helping people prevent PTSD. In Israel, every therapist goes to therapy. And uh, my mom is a therapist, my dad is a social worker, so I know it from my home. So that's one thing, but but the how is actually the key. And yes, chutzpah, it may sound like a cliche, but I've seen countless times how we reach a disaster situation. Everything is wiped out. Everything is chaotic. Teams from all over the world, right? We're not the only one. We're not operating in vacuum. And they are trying, and, and they're coming with 300 people, 500 people trying to figure out the customs and the bureaucracy. We come with a team of five to 10 people we pass them from behind and we get to the area first. And not only that we get to the area first, we are immediately connecting with local people and figuring out solutions. You know, there's always this joke that, you know, about Jewish geography, it takes about two to three questions to right. know someone who knows someone. So we use that kind of skill in disaster areas to connect, to link with community leaders, to link with Jewish communities, to link with even sometimes Muslim and Christian community with Israeli embassies and to build these ties. So figuring out innovative solutions to complicated problems is the real, I think, Israeli kind of mentality characteristic that we're bringing. So when things are organized, Israelis are not that good. But when things are chaotic, we thrive. (laughs) And you mentioned before the start of nation and one of the definitions of Israeli technology is that is solution-oriented technology. And that, that applies to what you do as well. But t- tell us a story, like an anecdote of some a, a time where the, where the Israeli chutzpah got you places that nobody could get or did things that were unthinkable. And Yeah, so many examples. But uh, one thing that I was personally very involved in was in, uh, in Nepal, after the earthquake they had in 2015, 10,000 people lost their life. More than a million people lost their homes. 
I used to live in Nepal before. It's a long story, but I speak Nepalese and it's not the most useful language in the world, but I speak Nepalese. And I was there with a search and rescue team from Israel. We arrived in 36 hours and we came with a small team, 15 people, very little equipment because we knew we will be able to connect with others and use their equipment. And we wanted to mobilize very fast. And I remember seeing so many other teams from every European country or, or the US stuck in costume, trying to figure out where they go. I spoke to someone I knew from before, from who was the head of, of the Nepalese um, army unit who was in charge of the relief effort. He pointed out one building. We started to talk to community members. We pulled out, there was a Norwegian team with, with a special kind of light detectors. We pulled out their resources, their rescue dogs. We kind of put together everything. And then because also we spoke the language and we were able to connect with local people, we were able to find the last survivor of the earthquake, who was a woman yeah. who was trapped for six days without food or water. We pulled out yeah. 21 yeah. dead bodies and a 22nd person was alive. And it was very much thanks to the Israeli chutzpah and kind of creativity and, and being very resourceful, being able to use every resource you find on the ground to save lives, basically. And how do you get there so fast? I understand that, I don't know, UNICEF gets there fast or whatever. I mean, they're a global organization. They're, they have offices in every country. There's an earthquake in Nepal. They have an office in Delhi. They send them. They're like a few hours away. But how do you get there? Like, how do you get there with a plane of Israelis? How do you organize them? How do you have a rapid response team that is always ready? Yeah. Do you have a short list, you know, a quick dial <laughs> list of doctors and people that you call? How does that work? So we have an emergency team in-house, emergency response team in-house, which we developed over the years. And, and it, it keeps on growing and developing. So these are people that are on call on our payroll. It right. used to be just volunteers. Now it's also paid staff. So the core is paid staff. And that includes team leaders, logisticians, medical team, water engineers, trauma specialists, and educational specialists. These are the kind of core areas of expertise. And when there is a crisis somewhere in the world, this team will deploy immediately again with, within a matter of hours. Sometimes we will have to get our own planes. Sometimes we will fly commercially. Sometimes we will fly commercially to the nearest point. And then from there, we will take a small charter. Sometimes we will go with every means of transportation. Sometimes it's in countries where we don't have diplomatic relations. And that's yeah. obviously yeah. more complicated. We get to it maybe a bit later. Yeah. But the, essentially, we have a team in-house. Now, this team is always complemented by what we call our emergency roster. So kind of our miluim, our reserve. And this is a team of about, now I think on our database, more than 3,000 people. Wow. Israelis, and not only Israelis. And now these are obviously people not on our payroll. These are people who right, are volunteers. Hospitals. But wait, how big is the, is the core emergency team? How many people are we talking yeah, about? Right now, globally, we have 350 full-time staff. But the actual emergency team, I would say is about 12 people. Wow. who are just dealing with so, ready so, to deploy so to new emergencies. The 350 people include folks that you would hire, let's say, in Nepal. And they're doing long-term programming. They're doing right. Okay, we're going to get also... Many of the them difference. are locals, by the way. And we're going to get to, in a minute, the difference between long-term and short-term. In right? immediate, like, yeah. So you said core team plus 3,000 volunteers right. that you have classified based on expertise and... 
Correct. In, in the different areas of expertise, many of them, we have great partnership with some of the leading hospitals and universities here, and not only from Israel. Again, we want people from all over the world, but they need to be trained by us. They need to be certified and have that kind of expertise. Now, when we reach out to 3,000 people, obviously most people are busy. They can't just jump on a plane, but a few people can. A few people can, and that's how we complement. We moved actually from being just a volunteer-based organization to now being mostly based on our full-time staff and complemented with professional volunteers, which we found to be much more sustainable and effective because volunteers, even if they can deploy, they can't go for long-term and the actual needs are long-term. I see. You mentioned about deploying in in areas where Israel doesn't have diplomatic relations. How does that work? So it's complicated. It's not easy, but it's not a barrier for us. Or it, it is a challenge, but it's something that we have learned to deal with in different ways. So I can give a few interesting examples. Probably the most complicated, stressful mission I was personally leading was in Afghanistan, where we led the rescue and evacuation of a few hundred Afghans who were at risk because of the Taliban. So in that case, I was on the border. I wasn't inside the country. And we had Afghan partners from Afghanistan who worked with us to coordinate the evacuation inside the country. And once people crossed the border, we took them to different shelters and organized the visas for them and the passports for them. And it was like a Fauda, James Bond type operation. In some countries like Iraq, for example, after the conflict with ISIS in Northern Iraq, we did send team members, but they could not identify themselves as Israelis. So we worked through a local partner. And obviously, it's also people who had other passports, not just Israelis. In other parts, places where we work, for example, with Syrian refugees, we didn't work inside Syria. We worked in Jordan and Turkey and Greece, mainly. That was interesting because the Syrians were shocked. They never expected to see Israelis supporting them. And we always joke, they probably think they took the wrong boat. It was even more interesting, just one more sentence on that, because Actually, we found out on the Syrian refugee crisis that our biggest asset in Israel are actually Arab Israelis, Arab Israelis who speak Arabic. There many of them are doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists. So we recruited hundreds of them to support Syrian refugees. So that was another interesting bridge that was built. I was going to ask you about that. I would assume the goodwill that you're building with those Syrian refugees, with countries where Israel doesn't have diplomatic relationships, can actually at some point bear fruits in the diplomatic arena, right? A hundred percent. And look, that's why I always say that Israel has a double impact, right? Like we have the impact on the ground and we have the impact of building bridges. I really don't like to call it Hasbara, and we don't see ourselves as a Hasbara organization, but obviously the organization is called Israel. Hasbara means public advocacy on behalf public of Israel. Public advocacy, yeah. right. So we're not public advocacy, but, and it's a very important kind of definition because the organization is called Israel for a reason. So I don't see Israel as a Hasbara organization, but I definitely see how through our work, we are able to build bridges and change people's perspective. And I'm not talking, it's not just anecdotal, right? It's not just one or two Syrians. We have supported just on the Syrian refugee crisis. We worked with Syrian refugees for six years and about 120,000 of people were supported directly by our teams in Greece, in Germany, in Turkey, and in Jordan. So it really goes a long way on the people-to-people connection. But also on the political level, we've seen how 
many leaders, political leaders in countries that don't have diplomatic relations with Israel or in countries that do have diplomatic relations with Israel, but we need to strengthen our friendship and partnership. I really remember how in Sierra Leone during the Ebola, which was super scary, I I was there and, and we worked very closely with the first lady of Sierra Leone. And she told me that she was so moved by the fact that people came from the other side of the world to support them in the Ebola, said Israel will be the first country she and her husband will visit when Sierra Leone will be declared Ebola free. And it happened. So, wow. so there's definitely a clear line of that. We are just, we just, that is confidential, but probably will be, will not be confidential, but we just received the news yesterday that the first lady of Ukraine is coming to Israel um, wow. yeah. on the 20th of June. And she asked to meet with Israel because we've been partnering with her in Ukraine. So we're seeing how it really goes a long way, not just with the political level, also with random celebrities like Sean Penn. He was working with us in Haiti, and then we brought him to Israel for the first time. And he was quoted saying that everything he learned about humanitarian aid, he learned from Israel. It helps on many different levels. And, and, and incidentally, I would also assume it helps with the crews, the volunteers from other organizations that, as we know, that world of international NGOs doesn't always look at Israel sympathetically, but then they actually interact with you as somebody that works for whatever, the UN or... Absolutely. And more than that, we are now getting about 20% of our funding from the UN. So so it's not just that they appreciate the work, they actually use, like they see UNICEF, for example, you mentioned which I know had some political challenges with Israel before. UNICEF is our partner in six or seven countries. They fund us in the millions of dollars every year, probably not because of our Israeli identity, but because they think we're doing a good job on specific areas of expertise that they focus on. So definitely making sure that Israel and Israel is a leading actor in the humanitarian development space, which is challenging for Israel, to say the least, is something that we're seeing uh, very strongly, especially in the last few years, as we're becoming more and more a leading actor. You mentioned the difference between long-term and short-term work. Now, as AJFN, the Jewish Funders Network, our members deal a lot with disaster relief. Some of them have kind of an envelope in their grant-making portfolio that is for when a disaster hits, they give money, they become involved. But I find, as I'm sure you find too, that after a few weeks with the issue is no longer a crisis, goes out of the headlines, out of sight, out of mind, and people lose interest and the crisis continues. The question has two parts. One is, how do you keep your people engaged, right? Because like when the issue lost its original emotional appeal. And the second is how do you structure the work differently? Because it's not the same deploying for an emergency, whatever, 12 people, they jump on a plane, they go than to mount a long-term rebuilding effort. Yeah. No, thank you. It's a great question. And it's really one of our biggest challenge. Um, I'm actually, I feel very strongly about it because I call it the aid festival or the aid circus in the first month. By the way, month is sometimes long. In most cases, it's a week, two max, where it's in the headlines and in the news and everyone in their grandma, you know, sending their grandmother socks, which is very nice, but not super helpful. And then everyone moved to the next tweet. We saw it very strongly in Turkey 
an earthquake where 50,000 people died. And again, it's not the first second part of the world, not that it's justified if it was, but it's in Turkey, it's in the Middle East, it's between Europe, it's an important partner of Israel. It was 50,000 people died, and two weeks later, nobody talks about it at all. And just from common sense, you don't have to be a humanitarian aid professional to know that recovery from this level of mega disaster will take years. So it's a huge challenge for us, and it's a big kind of educational process that we're doing with with our partners and supporters. Fortunately, more and more people understand it. I know it's been the conversation in JFN, and you were kind of taking a leading role in making sure, especially, for example, with Ukraine. Ukraine is even more complicated because it's an ongoing disaster, right? And in many aspects, the humanitarian needs now are stronger and bigger than what it was a year ago when everyone wanted to support Ukraine. Ukraine was an influx of funding, definitely from the Jewish community. All of the organizations who are still working in Ukraine, including Israel, are struggling now. The Ukraine and also like you mentioned before, the Syrian refugees is another example in which we struggle to maintain interest the level in the long interest. time. Right. So what, what I found out that works, and there's no magic solution, obviously, to any right. of these things, but what I find out that works, for example, the whole concept of missions to the field. Ukraine was very interesting. Everyone went to Poland, right? Everyone yeah. was traveling. And then a few months later, nobody was traveling. So I actually think that in the first initial stage, when there's overwhelming support, but also so much chaos, these missions could be harmful. But after a few months, I know that from our team in Ukraine, but also in every other crisis of the world, these missions, if done in a humble way, could be very, very impactful for people to understand long-term need. So you need to bring the right people. But we call it- I need to be careful because you don't want your, your sort of relief team quote unquote, babysitting, you know, donors from New York. Yeah. No, for sure. So that's why we we have a special team just for that. So the team on the ground is doing their work. But actually what we found out that the teams on the ground, again, and they can't get take a group every week, but right. every three to six months, bringing one group of key supporters or ambassadors who could amplify is actually a win-win thing because these teams and these communities feel abandoned by the world. Feel right, that right, the right, world right. forgotten about them, so they want to share their stories and share their voices. And if the group comes to visit for two, three days, that's actually helpful. So that's one thing that works. Obviously, any kind of ambassadors, not just celebrities, it could be rabbis. We did a rabbi's mission to the Syrian refugee crisis, which was very powerful trip. And then in each and every synagogue in the Bay Area on the high holidays, they spoke about not just about our work, but also really sharing the voices of the refugees and their stories. So these kind of things work, but it's it's still definitely an ongoing challenge and it's an educational process. And we need JFN and other organizations to take a leading role. And I, and I know that quite a few members, your core members, are kind of more understanding. So yeah. we definitely see a role that you are playing in that scene. The other thing about your question about this long-term strategy, yes, it's totally different. The emergency response is done by our team from Israel, but what the team is doing when they reach the ground, especially when it's a big disaster and we know the needs will be long-term, they're doing two things. One thing is more simple. They're trying to save lives, provide immediate relief. The more complicated thing is really build strong local team and network and partnership. So from the get-go, we are trying to identify local partners, local NGOs, sometimes local government members, recruit them. One of the biggest headaches that we have, but 
crucial to our success is actually setting up local entities in each country. So right, right now we are in 14 countries long term. We are and we are registered as an NGO. There is Israel, Guatemala, there's Israel, Kenya, and there's Israel, Uganda, and Israel, Colombia, and Israel, Ukraine. So these are local entities that are part of our global network. And, and you, we need it to be able to hire local staff, to be able right. to transfer money there, and to be able, by the way, to fundraise from the UN because UNICEF is not going to fund probably our headquarter in Israel or our office in the States, but they will fund local entities in Kenya. If you were in my, in my shoes, and you needed to advise funders when disaster strikes, forget for a minute about your, your Israel hat. What are the, the three, four, five key elements to consider before you fund disaster relief? Like I tell them some, I tell them, look people that have contacts on the ground, look for people that don't do it for the first time, don't, you know, people that have a track record, but what yeah. would you advise if you were a philanthropic advisor in terms of disaster relief? Some of the things that are the obvious, which I know you're already doing that, looking long-term, but even if you can't look long-term, make it flexible because there are donors who tell us, okay, we want to donate to Ukraine and we want you to spend it all in the next two weeks or in the next three months. We try to tell these donors, great, we're happy you want to support Ukraine. We're happy you saw the earthquake in Turkey on CNN and you want to do something about it, but please put your trust in us and allow us some flexibility and, and spending it over one year, for example, or spending it not just on food and water, not because it's not important, but these are areas that are easier to fund. Let's think about neglected areas. Mental health is a big part. We as Israel taking a leading role on. A lot of people want to fund children. A lot of people want to fund infrastructure. There are always gaps in humanitarian response and looking for these areas is very important. Also in terms of geographically speaking, there's always you know what they call ground zero, right? The place where Usually we see on the media whenever there is like an earthquake or something. And usually 90, 95% of the aid goes to that place because it right. was in the media. Now, it could be that place is the most affected. But if you go two miles down the road, it's probably also severely affected and probably receive maybe 5 or 10% of the aid. When you think geographically, think about areas that are not, that wasn't necessarily on the news loop. For these areas, try to assess what are the needs. Local partnership is crucial. Local organization on the ground is crucial. Organization that, that are partners that are bringing expertise from outside, from Israel, but not only from Israel, also from whatever, the Western world, who actually partner with local organizations. So I do appreciate when a donor is coming to me and telling me, okay, we want to know who are your local partners that you support and build their capacity. Tell me about them. How did you find them? How did you identify them? What are they bringing to the table? And Israel, of course, a lot of our donors, as you know very well, and you know many of them, they donate to Israel because they want to do something in crisis, but they also see the double impact. There's more actually. than just one impact, and, and donors could look at entities that give you more than the, the one impact there, right? And I think that's fair enough, especially for donors who are not focused on humanitarian aid. I always say this, it's okay to have multiple motives. It's not okay to have ulterior motives. <laughs> Meaning if you say, I don't really care about the Syrians, I just want to just be help Israel diplomatically. That's problematic because it shows in the work you do. 
But if you say, I want to help the Syrian refugees, and I also want to help Israel diplomatically, that's totally legitimate. And actually, probably, I probably. encourage funders to do that, you know, to, to find things that, that can do multiple goals. But what, one more where, thing I want to say, yeah. one more thing that I don't want to forget, which I think is crucial, and I don't think enough funders are thinking about it, is how this kind of work, not just by Israel, the field of humanitarian work, supporting refugees, supporting countries affected by climate disasters, how that brings an opportunity to tie in the younger generation. Some think about it, but many are not thinking enough about it. And I saw with many of our of our supporters, that was a game changer for them. That enabled them to really connect with their children, grandchildren, etc. At both levels, at the level of right. the donor, but at also at the level of the volunteers. And absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, young people yeah. that have an expertise that comes Engage them, engage right. them in different right. ways, for sure. Let's talk about you a little bit. Did you ever think, I don't know, 20 years ago that you'd be doing this now? No, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but I didn't know there was a profession like like this thing, global humanitarian aid work. But if I knew that for sure, that would have been my dream because I, on a very selfish personal level, I think similar to many other Israelis in my generation, I love to travel. I followed the Humus Trail after yeah. the army. And I want to go off the beaten path. Yes, I'm happy. I'm always happy to have a good meal and stay in a five-star resort. Don't get me wrong. I love that. But I'm always interested in what the real issues are and what the real people are experiencing. And I just can't think of any other profession where I have so many learning opportunities, right? I learn about cultures and geography and politics and medical support and psychology and trauma and languages and so on a very deep but very selfish level, I just learned so much from doing this work. And um, yeah, I didn't think I'll get involved in that. And, and one thing led to another. And I really, from even before the Humus Trail in Israel, working with Bedouin community, working with Ethiopian in my Shnat Sherut service here before the army, really one thing led to another. And having this global perspective and global impact on one hand, but also staying very connected to Israel. I was offered a few positions in the UN throughout my career, and probably the salary was like three times more than (laughs) Israel. But that wasn't so interesting for me because I really wanted to have this strong connection to Israel and bring it out to the world. You're like traveling around the world. You go to these weird places, but you also have two young kids. I have twins. I have twins. How does it work? And what do you tell them? That's going out for like extended periods. Like it must be hard. Yeah. So first of all, how I met my wife is, you know, what I, for lack of a better term, we call it disaster dating. (laughs) I met my wife in the tsunami in Japan. She's Japanese or now kind of a Japanese, if you will. And um, she was also doing relief work and, but more, she was representing a big tech company. So we now live in Israel and she loves Israel and she's very connected. We have twins who will be four years old next month. So they were born just before COVID. Mm -hmm. And in 2019, I counted, and it's terrible for my environmental footprint, but I counted 113 flights in one year. And then they were born and then we had COVID right after. So it's terrible to say, but for me personally, COVID was a blessing. Right. I couldn't travel and we had to figure out at least right ways to work remotely. And so for the first two years of their life, which is 
Very important. I, I was well, there all the time. Now then, the party's over. Now the party's over. However, thankfully, the teams on the ground are doing the actual work. Me right. in my role now is much more partnerships, fundraising, strategy, conferences, speak. So I travel a lot, but short, trying to kind of yeah. maximize it. Uh, Yotam, actually, the reason why I'm asking is not to got yeah. to, be to pry on your personal life. It's just no, no, no to worries. touch on the yeah. issue of who cares for the carers, or rather, how the people that do this work take care of themselves. Because I imagine that, yes, the traveling, being away from the kids is tough, but yeah. But also the actual work must be difficult, like emotionally difficult. Like I, I did some work in the humanitarian sphere. And when you come home, you're, it hits you. It hits you. So how do you and your team take care of themselves? How do you, and their families, that they're also affected? Yeah, no, thank you. It's a, it's a very important question and a very important issue. And you're right that when you are in the adrenaline, you're in the scene, it's one thing, but when you get home, it really hits you. And the very honest truth is that we learn the hard way at Israel. Me personally too, but many of my team members experience different levels of burnout, what we call secondary trauma, the feeling that Whatever you do is just a drop in the ocean. Yeah, a lot of guilt, too, survivor guilt. Exactly. All of the above. We experienced it in many different shapes or forms. The good news is that, again, we learned and we are in a much better place now at Israel. So we have a team, first of all, that just in charge of emotional support for the staff. There's 12 psychotherapists in different languages, by the way, not just in Hebrew or English, also in Spanish, in Arabic, in Portuguese, who are now working on that and providing support for all of our staff, including local staff around the world. There are places where we make it mandatory. For example, Sudan, South Sudan, where we work with victims of rape, gender-based violence. We don't give it as an option. It's not optional, right? People have to get emotional support. At least they have to start. That's one thing. The second thing is much more R&R, like really kind of mandatory times, especially people who work in, in the refugee setting, in refugee camps. Once in 10 weeks, basically, they have to take 10 days off when we pay for that. And I think a lot of it is just being aware that we're in a very fragile environment and there's a lot of need for peer support. We put it as one of the well-being of our staff because of our personal experience became one of the four core pillars for our strategic plan. Like it's right. really, it's out there on the website. But having said that, there's still a room for more. There's still right. a room for us to do more and it's hard. And we encourage people who work in difficult environments to rotate, not to but, stay there for more than two to three years in a specific hardship position. And honestly, it's not for everyone. A lot of people who were doing this field work now move to work in headquarter. Because, again, they felt they can't do this for a long time. They have more family members. So it's, again, it's not, there are quite a few of our locations are not, I would say, good for family deployment. So that's also for people in specific age. And by the way, it's interesting, our age group, the people on the ground is sometimes a mix, right? You have younger people before, you know, they have kids. And then you have older people who are... Yeah, you know, retirees. Yeah, I was going to say, something you can have now is retirees that are healthy and active and youthful and can, exactly, and I would exactly. love to and do looking, that. Yeah. And looking for these kind of challenges. So it's, it's a very interesting mix of people, but it's a big priority for us. One of the things that, that I've been observing, you know, from being in the field for some time 
was the transformation of Israel. And especially, just to name it, since you took over, you made it organizationally into a different place. What I'm trying to say, there was a process of organizational transformation that was very interesting from the point of view of leadership, of organizational development. Just walk us through that process. And by the way, that does not imply a criticism of what Israel no, before. Absolute, it's just, absolutely not. But it's a very different place now. It is a very different place, and there's a lot of people who deserve credit for it, not just to be humble. But yeah. for me, obviously, one of the core things for the organization is our funding and how we can sustain ourselves. So the model, before I became the, the CEO, that actually worked for a certain period of time and were good for that stage was that whenever there was a crisis somewhere in the world, we would fundraise for that crisis. Right. And it's easier to fundraise when there's a crisis, but the funds were restricted only for right. this crisis. So we could have got, for example, in Haiti, after the earthquake, we raised probably close to $5 million, but there was no infrastructure to support that. There was no core operation. There's no headquarters, essentially. We didn't even have an office in Israel. We were registered in Beersheba. So when I took over, the first thing that was important for me was to actually build an organization and core operation. And that's not just what you think about humanitarian aid. Yes, we could always recruit more doctors and nurses, but we needed a finance team and an HR team and communication. So the very basic building blocks of an organization, we just didn't have. And obviously, in order to get that, you need core supporters who understand and really believe in the organization. So when I joined, and that's the credit that I give my predecessor, was that there was a little bit of more awareness about Israel. And people were kind of, it's, it was more on people radar. So I leveraged that. Right. I was able to leverage that to build trust and to build kind of long-term commitments. And that's actually the most important thing to shift from just being an immediate response, but to also long-term recovery. And we talked about why it makes perfect sense, but we didn't really have that before 2016. And one of the things I've seen kind of from the outside and we kind of have inside, have outside is that there's now a policy or a strategy of very functional partnerships with other Jewish organizations. Like you mentioned right. the non-Jewish, but in the Jewish space, there are many organizations doing this as well. Right. Israel now is really working on in coordination with the, like stuff we did together for the Ukraine was with JDC Absolutely. and Jaffe and in the past, Absolutely. the relation was a little bit more adversarial, and now it looks as if everybody's working together there. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And for me, yes, that's a part that actually I feel very strongly about the concept. Yes, of course, we're all competing for limited resources, but there are ways where all the organization could really learn and collaborate and coordinate. It's not just collaboration, right? It's not just that we sent a team of Israel and JDC together. It's a lot about coordination, making right. sure we're not duplicating the efforts, making sure that if they are focusing on one area, we will complement their efforts and vice versa. Obviously, like everything in life, it's all about relationship. And when there's good relationship on the leadership and the lay leadership level, which you know was very important for me to establish, things are much easier. And we don't see each other as a threat now, right? We understand that donors and philanthropists actually really want to see collaboration and coordination. And it's not like there's limited resources just for them or just for us or just for other organizations. Yeah. It actually works very well when we coordinate and communicate on a regular basis. And also, honestly, you know, there's so much for us and for all the other organizations to learn from each other. For me, it was very critical to build this strong relationship and the strong trust and 
JDC is a great example for that, right? We really have now worked with them, I think, in four or five projects just in the last two years. And it's beyond that, right? We had this Bondman event, so Ariel, the CEO of JDC, is coming. And for me, it was it was very important. It meant yeah. a lot to me. What Yotam is talking about, that for those of you don't know, is that he got awarded the very prestigious Charles Bronfman Prize, very well-deserved, at a lovely ceremony. Yeah, it was really moving. Thanks for coming, uh, by the way. <laughs> One of the things I think that in the MO of Israel, but, but in general about, I would say, Jewish disaster relief is finding gaps. Like you were talking before about the village two miles from ground zero that nobody's paying right. attention to or mental health. And I think that that's a very interesting way of thinking because I have the theory sometimes that philanthropy is acupuncture, right? In the scope of things, you don't have a lot of resources. It may look like a lot of money, but compared to the corporate world, the to government sector, you have little money. In a way, it's like acupuncture because you have a very thin needle, but if you put it in the right place in the body, you create a systemic effect. And I think that what you're describing is a little bit like that, right? Like we are with our thin needle, with our relatively little support in comparison to others, where can we have a systemic effect that is much leveraged many times over? hundred percent. And actually, I have a great example of exactly that point that you mentioned with one of your members with the Beverly Foundation, where after Hurricane Maria in 2017, the island of Dominica, which I never heard of, I thought Dominican Republic, but it's a separate yeah, country it's a separate of 70,000 yeah. people, 70,000 people. So the size of Afula, you know, yeah. a small town in Israel, but the whole island, 95% of it was destroyed. The Beverly Foundation called on Israel and they made a long-term commitment and we work on long-term recovery now. We already finished six years project and they're committed for another four. So it's a total of 10 years project. And this is, again, one of the most vulnerable places for climate change. They have hurricanes right. every year. So really helping them prepare. So that's another place where there's no other organization. If you go there and you talk to the local people in the supermarket, they think Israel is bigger than the Red Cross yeah. because we are the leading organization. There. So that's another place where we really identified a gap in humanitarian response and very limited resources that were there. And we saw that with our limited resources, we can make a huge impact on the right. life of the people in the island. To close here, and this is fascinating, I think we can talk for hours about sure. this, and hopefully we will at some later point, but I, I want to go back to your twins. What kind of world would you like them to grow up in? After seeing so much devastation and disasters and things, like, you must come back and say, I just wish for you that dot, dot, dot. One thing I didn't mention is that we at Israel, we don't use the term natural disasters. Disasters are not natural. They are climate-related events. They are man-made disasters. We're, we're not naive. We don't think we can end poverty. We don't think we think climate change is real, whether we like it or not. So the question is how every community around the world could be better prepared to deal with the challenges that are coming, whether we like it or not. So that's how I want to see my kids. I want to see my kids living in the world, in communities that are just better prepared, better equipped mentally physically, technologically, to cope with this crisis. And what we found out is that the best way to learn that is after there is a crisis. So that's how we see, as terrible as it sounds, we feel that disasters bring opportunities for right. communities to be much more prepared and aware. And so that's the world that I want my kids to live in, which I think is realistic, 
and not just naive of saying that they will live in a beautiful world without, no, the world is not so beautiful. The world is very sad, but if communities and individuals and governments are better prepared to deal with the challenges that are coming, my kid can live a happy life. Thank you so much to Yotam Politzer. You can learn more about the essential work that Israel does at israaid.org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Please write to us at communication at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can follow me on Twitter at Spokolny. I leave you with a quote from Fred Rogers who said, we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. So keep being heroes, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives. What Gives.